HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, Heritage Radio Network has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Deirdre Heakin and Caleb Barber. We'll talk to Deirdre and Caleb about making wine in Vermont, co-fermentations, hybrid grapes, mentorship, and probably a lot more. We'll taste a couple of wines, a Petnat and a wine that I asked Deirdre to bring in to taste. So we'll talk about that during this show and for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Born in Indiana, summers in college in Vermont, dancing their way into each other's hearts. Deirdre met her husband, Caleb Barber at Middlebury. Both love food, influenced by Italy, opened an Italian restaurant, grew their own produce, then eventually grapes, and practiced farm to table before it was a thing. Loyal to the terroir and indigenous fruits, Deirdre went on to make Alpine wines in the mountains and lakes of the great state of Vermont. Her first vintage was around 2010, you'll correct me later. Her innovation, commitment, influence, and mentorship has not only put Vermont wine on the map, but how we think about wine, sparklers, and cider too. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Deirdre and Caleb. Thank you so much you. for having us. So we're talking to both of these guys 
at our studios in Bushwick at Roberta's, the Heritage Radio Network Studios. Um, it doesn't matter, but today's Wednesday. We were supposed to do the show yesterday. It snowed. Everybody was able to rally, and here we are. So thank you for hanging in there and doing all of that. All right, so this is kind of an interesting, silly question, but what brings you to town? So um, the main reason that we came to town initially uh, was we are participating tomorrow in the Wine and Spirits Top 100 Wineries Tasting here in the city, and we are super excited to be doing that. It's the first time that Vermont has been recognized as a wine region. This is your first time at the Wine and Spirits 100? It is. It's the first time a Vermont winery has been included. Uh, so we keep kind of joking and saying it's our judgment of Paris, <laughs> but it's, I, uh, <laughs> I think you earned your chops where it's less judgment, well, more thank you. presentation. Th- thank so. you. Uh, but we're very excited to be representing, you know, our place and, uh, being able to share some wines tomorrow. With so a good side story to that, Josh Green, who is the editor publisher of Wine and Spirits, curates this one hundred top 100 wines and literally picks, you know, with his crew who he thinks. So to your point, you know, it's an honor to be there, um, present Vermont wines and all of that. But and I know you know this, he comes on the show at the end of the year, every year for seven straight years to give me his take on it. And he's talked about La Garagista three times. It just stands out to him. So really, the question is, why did it take so long for him to invite you this year? But we won't get into that. <laughs> um, are you doing dinners and retail visits and all that crap? We are doing uh, dinners. We did a beautiful dinner last night at M. Wells Steakhouse. Oh, no, in Queens. Yeah, or Long Island, Island City. City. Yeah. And we did, um, I did a reading and seminar beforehand, which was great. Oh, wow. Um, and then tonight we're at Chambers uh, doing... Uh, with our beloved friend, Pascaline. With beloved Pascaline at the communal that should be table. Fun. It should be fun. It should be fun. That should be fun. Good luck with that. Yeah, and then, thank you. And then tomorrow, Wine and Spirits. We're oh, right. Here, yeah, we're right, here right, with right. you today. Right. And uh, then back home on Friday. All right. So busy trip. Yeah. Um, thanks for fitting us in. All right. So in the intro, I kind of spotted a lot of things you did and where you were and how you met and all of that. But help me fill in the blanks, you know, for context as we move forward. Um, I guess get me to the time where you guys met, you got together, you were hanging out. Take me from where for whatever, not for whatever reason, but tell me why Italy was so influential to you guys. You wound up going there, staying there, learning how to bake, blah, blah, blah. Came to kind of rush me through that point to the present sort of. Sure, sure. I'm actually going to let Caleb take that. (laughs) Okay. Because he's really why we ended up in Italy uh, based on an experience he had when we were in college. Uh, And what was that experience? Yeah. Uh, we, so, let's see. I know, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, where, hey, where great to idea, Larry. Where I know, to jump right. In? Come on, Larry. Right <laughs> <laughs> I'm fumbling the setup here. Um, so, we studied, we studied modern dance in, in, in college. Um, that was how we, that was how we met. That right. was the context within which we met. And, after graduation, one of our dance colleagues from college, uh, a woman who's half Italian, um, 
asked us, do you guys want to come help form a performance group with me in Italy? So and, unrelated to anything you're doing now, but right. to dance yeah. is what you were doing then. Right. Um, I, I had what we were doing then. We were doing a lot of things, actually. I, yeah. yeah, that wasn't yeah. accurate. I, I, had, I had been able to go to Italy for the first time, my first time in Europe as part of the dance company from the college uh, right after I graduated. And uh, I was, it's lit my brain up. I like really wanted to get back nice. and explore more and understand more. Um, so we took this opportunity. Um, the timing was, um, was sort of wild. We left on one-way tickets the day after we were married. Wow. Um, yes. Jumped right into yeah. that. Yeah. Um, took a little honeymoon on the way there by train. And then we were in Italy for a year. Um, was the year dance? Yeah. Was it devoted it was, to the it, concept of going there to start a troupe? Yeah. We were, we were teaching, do, creating new choreography. Um, performing. Performing. Uh, <laughs> learning the language on the fly. I, I minored in German. Deirdre, a longtime student of French. Yeah. I had studied yeah. Spanish previously. He's a uh, language guy. And uh, so we were, we were in it up to our necks. All right, know, so take right me away. to the point. You're doing the dance thing, kind of fulfilling the, uh, the original idea, which was to go there and dance and with yeah. friend. And it, when does, when does the I guess food first, food and wine things start becoming a thing with you and you guys. As soon as we got back to the States. But were you <laughs> inhaling it all while you were uh, there? Yes, or? absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Like inquisitive? Like, that's cool. This oh, is delicious. Yeah. Yeah. No, we knew, we, were, we knew that we were um, being exposed to uh, a sort of a life-changing um, data set shall we say, sensory experience while we were there and meeting people who were, uh, you know, were not involved in our dance lives at all, but who were food people. And um, so what do you do when you come back? You're sitting on the plane saying, well, we should open a restaurant. Yeah. Where do or? we find Where do we find the good stuff? Yeah. When I we mean, get back? it was really about initially about trying to eat and live and drink in the way that the Italian culture does. We were really inspired by being at the table and what that means in their culture. So when we got home, it was like, okay, how do we, how do we eat locally? And at that time, everybody was eating internationally. You know, a to go to a restaurant was to have the most far-flung ingredients you could possibly have. We were really interested in how close could we get to home, and we uh, settled back in Vermont and started looking at where we could source our vegetables, our meat, our cheese, you know, all of these things. And that kind of dovetailed at the same time with this idea of opening a restaurant. We, we had seen a version of a restaurant uh, owned by family friends of ours in Italy, and uh, that was very appealing to us, the way that they ran it, um, what they put on the table, what the emotion was that, that was, was elicited. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, yeah. it was very, we wanted to do that thing. And 
And we wanted to pay homage to all the people who had taken us in and fed us and had us at their table and just sort of how graceful and gracious they so are. So the, the concept is less curious to me than could Vermont or is Vermont the place to do that? Does anybody know or give a crap about? But they do because they're dairy farmers, farmers, you know, they all the produce. So that played into your idea of local and all of that. So how long after you got back do you actually put it together? And didn't you go back to Italy to apprentice baking and stuff? I did. For this, for the cause of the betterment of what you were. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, so we got back. We sort of resettled ourselves, got jobs. I got a, I got a kitchen job. Um, Intentionally to be in that environment? Yeah. Yeah. And um, Deirdre was working in publishing at the time. And then as we started to talk about visual, you know, how we were starting to visualize the business that we wanted to create, um, we decided the important step of our preparation was going back to do some kind of apprenticeship so or study dead period. serious then to commit yeah. that. Yeah. And we were luckily able to... How long were you living there for that? Uh, that was that a was couple a, months. Yeah, that oh, was okay. a short so stint. It wasn't and, crazy long. Yeah, it wasn't not crazy, crazy long. long. No. Yeah. And I had actually started graduate school at that point uh, Where, in, in, in Vermont, in Vermont in creative writing, uh, getting an MFA in that. So, uh, Caleb was there longer. Did you finish that? I did. Oh, you did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll talk about your yeah. writing later on. Um, all right. So let's move quickly. Cause there's so much stuff to talk about, but I don't want to rush. Just move quickly. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you're in Italy, you're back. The idea of Vermont's the right place. You want to open a restaurant. You do it, right? Yeah. When? 96. We opened in fall of 96. With the concept of emulating that Italian restaurant and doing it in a Vermont backyard. It, yeah. Exactly. But we, we, we launched with a slightly different concept, which was uh, a bakery. Started as a bakery. Started as a bakery. Yeah. So the kind of place where you can go in, get the espresso, the cappuccino, the little focaccia sandwiches, the Italian morning daytime cookies, yeah, sweet and savory, yeah, lunch. And we thought from a from a business perspective, because we'd never owned a restaurant before, never run a restaurant before, not an easy business, uh, not an easy business. We thought that that would be a lower threshold entry into moving towards what we wanted to do. Wait, you knew that when you started. We did know that. We knew we were not prepared. It's pretty calculated because <laughs> yeah. you know how yeah. frightening opening a full-blown restaurant is. Yeah. So yeah. you start with that and it kind of, I guess it becomes popular and it's good. It morphs into a lead service, lunch, dinner. Right. Get, exactly. Right. Exactly. So like a year or so after you open, you're, you know, blowing out full meals at least some nights of the week. Uh, we, actually we, during the summer we did, we, that first summer. Yeah, we started to sort of plant the seeds of dinner service uh, pretty early on, but it took us six years to complete the evolution to dinner restaurant. But being in Vermont, I'm assuming you did some gardening for the restaurant. That was like the big deal of 
what you were doing, like growing things maybe you couldn't procure or influences from Italy, stuff like that. So was like the home restaurant garden a yeah. big deal to this and the availability of great stuff in Vermont? Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, for sure. we definitely started gardening for ingredients that we couldn't get. Uh, there was, there was certainly a, um, farm to table movement starting at right. that time. I mentioned uh, in the intro, I mean, yeah. it's not like it was a given thing. No, but like CSA's community supported agriculture was starting to take off. So there were people doing small homestead farms, but they weren't growing radic things like radicchio at the time, right. which was something really? that Caleb is obsessed with. Yeah, and so great. that was our first garden Broccoli was mostly, <laughs> mostly <laughs> radicchio. Couldn't buy, couldn't buy any form of radicchio, yeah. frise, yeah. escarole. Now there's you like know. Yeah. four and a good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And right. Around, you know, yeah. right. It's you know, crazy. The, All right. So you're growing stuff, you're cooking it. You're kind of getting where you want to be, right? You got this cool place. Yeah. Um, before I ask my next question, how much wine exposure did you guys have like before Italy? And it sounds like it was only Italian wine. I mean, were you, you cut your teeth on Italian? That was 90% of what you knew and drank sort of, or what? Well, I, I think at the very beginning, uh, when we started to drink and appreciate wine, when we would go out to restaurants, uh, I would say actually we gravitated to French wine. Um, the first wine I drank was white Bordeaux. Uh, and then we had a friend who was living and working in wine in California. So he would send us boxes of things. So you were drinking um, other so stuff. So we were drinking other stuff, yeah. but it was really that experience in Italy and observing how and experiencing how wine was part of the food culture and completely intertwined on a simple level or on an exalted level. And, you know, because we followed that train of Italian food, we began to really explore Italian right. wine. So naturally. Yeah. Um, it, it worked out that way. Yeah. You considered yourself like a sommelier, right? A self-taught. Was that because you owned a restaurant and you could call yourself whatever you want? Or? Right. I mean, what? Do, I, I don't mean, know what to no, call like, <laughs> yeah. You didn't want to take less training and you didn't need to. Who had I, the time? But, but yeah, yeah, but you were the wine person. Exactly. I was right. the wine person. And I was I did in the find, kitchen. Somebody needed to manage yeah. the wine Yeah. List. And uh, I yeah. found mentors along the way. Let's uh, talk about that. Yeah. At that, at that point, who were you exposed to? Who was available? Who caught your attention? Yeah, so there was a gentleman um, who used to work for uh, an Italian uh, importer called Vias, uh, -E which is yeah, yeah who's been around. around for a long yeah. time. And George Schwartz was their educational director. And I met. He came up. He would come up to Vermont periodically to host um, educational events. And I met him at one of these things, and we realized that we had a mutual affinity for uh, undiscovered regional Italian regional varieties. And, but Italian, but also? Italian, right. yes. Yeah. And there was and, enough undiscovered stuff then compared to yes, today, right? Exactly. And the more obscure, the better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was like really what interested uh, me at the time. And George was uh, is a uh, master of that. He has a um, photographic palette. Uh, he remembers everything he's ever tasted. 
where it was from, who made it, all of that kind of crazy stuff. And so he was a really wonderful mentor at the beginning. But uh, like the real deal. You're lucky that deal. it wasn't just some guy who the was obsessed deal. with Burgundy only. No, right. I mean, you know, you got the exactly, whole spread and everything. Exactly. Right. So I, I learned a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount from him. And that opened your eyes. Yeah. Um, and in your travels, obviously, you met a few yeah. more people early on. Yes. And I, I would say, um, I don't know if he would consider himself a, a mentor, but but I do. Uh, he's now our distributor here, Jacobo Di Teodoro. Why, he, why not? Yeah, he he we he was working for he's somebody else at the time. He's not that old either, right? No, he's yeah, not. Young guy. Um, he is a young guy, but incredibly knowledgeable. And when we connected with him in uh, the early two mm. thousands, yeah, I would say mm. when he would come up to Vermont and do wine dinners, uh, we just had the three of us had a great rapport. And we're able to share a lot. And I would say he... Uh, Does he focus mostly on Italian? I would not say... Not entirely. Not but entirely. That lean. is definitely his specialty. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, their book, they have some French wines. They've got some domestic, uh, Austrian, uh, and some really beautiful, yeah. a lot of beautiful things. It's a good place. Um, all right. So let's go back to the restaurant. Let's go back to the fact that you're farming um, not farming, but you're growing stuff for the restaurant, things that you like, want, important, not available. Um, get me to the grapes. Do you say, hey, well, well, if we could grow bitter greens, we could grow grapes or there's apples falling everywhere? I mean, wh- where does the wine thing, where's the birth yeah. of that? That's a, <laughs> um, a little bit more circuitous. Uh, I would say like most or many wine professionals. I got to that point in my career where I wanted to understand more about production. I wanted to understand more uh, about what I was tasting when wines were going through their complete process. And like many other wine professionals, I immediately thought, oh, I go somewhere for harvest. (laughs) Learned that way, right? Well, to try and leave Vermont during fall Foliage right. when you own a restaurant is That's impossible. Time, time, that and skiing. It's, exactly, it's impossible. So that was not going to happen. <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, you know, now what? Because I definitely want to learn more about what this fermentation thing is. So we ended up uh, buying first juice from one of our vegetable purveyors coming from California, no Providence. Uh, and I was making uh, wine in five gallon buckets in our bathtub. And what was the varietal? Uh, oh, I was Italian, of oh, course. I, so I Barbera. got it was from Bar- California. From California. Yeah. You're talking to this day about varietals that's not grown a ton around the state, no. getting better. Yeah, yeah. So and you were bringing that in. Yeah. So you know, I I just wanted to go through the mechanics of what right. fermentation. You was. were that inquisitive. Yeah, and did that for a couple of years. I was <clears> like, okay, that was great. You know, learned a lot from that. But what I'm really trying to get at is, I look at the list that I've curated. Curated is that all of the producers on my list are farming their own fruit. Uh, they happen to all be biodynamic, actually, um, which I that was not something I set out for. Uh, it just kind of turned out that way. And that led me on a, another journey. Um, and I I uh, thought, you know, what I want to get at is actually 
being a believer that wine is made in the field, made in the vineyard, I want to know that part. So then I was confronted with the question of, well, how am I going to do that? I live in Vermont. We did have the opportunity to travel in the springtime. We could close the restaurant and we would go and collect new recipes and we would go and visit wine producers at that time. So I thought, well, I can, I can do a little bit of that, but I want to do the day-to-day understanding of the growing. And it just happened that at that time, the sort of nascent world of Vermont wine came on our radar and we began to investigate, started tasting around. There were people. There were people. Yeah, there were people. And so you were early and influential, but it was happening. It was yeah. already happening. It was already happening. There was a, a first wave. Did people, of people have a clue or you kind of discovered every aspect of how and what people were doing? That first wave, like most new regions, they were people who were just trying to get plants in the ground and get some infrastructure and figure out what would grow, what would With grow. the right intention. With the right intention. Yeah. Um, Not just like fruit wines or stuff. No, they, um, there were some tasting people. Tasting rooms. There were some people doing fruit wines and definitely the Not concept. Not that fruit wines are bad. <laughs> yeah, we'll right, right. Yeah. Um, and there, there definitely was this idea that uh, the tasting room model was what people wanted to do. They right. wanted to plant a vineyard and have a tasting room that would attract tourism and local visitors. And that was that was that first wave. I would say we were at the beginning of the second wave, which really started to concentrate on things like the farming, uh, the geology, the geography, the microclimate, kind of dialing in those. Um, was that a deeper dive than what other people were doing? Just I think so at the time. That's Just, the clue you had. And exactly, you wanted. exactly. I would say the <clears throat> people who started uh, loved wine, were interested in wine, but they didn't work in wine right. before this. We had that. You were loaded in that to we go. were already right. working in the field. So we were able to bring that to it. So you eventually, in your little property, you identify some good spots to grow vines. And that's when you started planting, right? Well, it's funny because when we bought our property, we, uh, several years before, we would joke about like, well, it has a beautiful southeastern <laughs> facing slope. This would be perfect for vines. Ha, ha, ha. ha right. Ha. We'll get yeah. to that. Yeah. 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 You're, you're consumed with it now. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this question because it's a good point. People don't think of Vermont as a wine place, right? Well, they're starting to. Well, no, 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 no. We understand yeah. that. When did you, and I think you may have answered the question, but expand. When did you realize that Vermont could be a great place to grow wines. After visiting the people that started opening wineries, surveying everything, what else? Because we haven't talked about hybrids, grapes, you know, the weather. Yeah. Um, so when did you realize, you know what, we, we could do this? Yeah, I would say we, when Caleb and I went to go taste with a gentleman named Chris Granstrom, who had one of the early wineries called Lincoln Peak, he spent a day with us. We had a wonderful time tasting through his wines, visiting the vineyards. And we were so impressed by the work that he was doing. Uh, the wines were, you know, technically really well made. Um, and they showed so much possibility that at the time he had a little nursery and we left with Clippings. our first 100 plants in uh -huh. the back of our car. 
which we had to figure out very quickly within a week of how we were going to plant these things. Weren't planning to plant by but plants. Literally, no, have, no, exactly. <laughs> but literally, you have to get them in the ground. You have to get them yeah. in the ground, you and it was a little bit late in the season and right. all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we were, you could see, you could see the potential. You could see the possibility right. Right. of uh, how interesting these varieties were and how interesting you know, once you start doing a deep dive into the geology of Vermont, you know, you go, oh, okay, this is this is a great place to grow wine. So back up a little, because I may have missed something. Um, were you, you were looking at grapes, what was available, growing there, available, I mean, by the type of grapes that were indigenous there. Was cider a thing early on or at the same time? Yes. Kind of at the same kind, time. Kind of at the same time. I, I would say that. Like I'm going to make cider, I'm going to make wine, and then was, obviously you mixed them. It, it was first I'm going to make wine, and then it was, oh, there's also some interesting cider stuff happening here. What's that about? And an abundance of fruit. And an abundance of fruit. Right. And we already had apple trees at that point that we had planted for culinary purposes. So uh, we were able in our first vintage, our first official vintage, to uh, start with cider also. So uh, they became, um, they happened, they were symbiotic at that point. So you mentioned one person that influenced you. Did you look towards anyone else as far as their model? Like that restaurant in Italy influenced you to open a restaurant and be like them. Were there any, you know, wine people that to this day are important to what and who you are? Yes. Um, one of our first... <clears throat> Mentors was a gentleman named gentleman named Bruno Di Conchiles, uh, who was with his family winery um, Di Conchiles down in Campania for a long time. He now has a, a different project called Tempe di Zoe. Uh, in he, Campania. In Campania, uh, he was extremely uh, instrumental. He was very kind, very generous. Took a lot of time with us. Was very interested in the project. Thought we were crazy. Um, he, I think he, his nickname for me is Testardo, which is, in Italian wow. is hard-headed okay. <laughs> um, or though. deaf. Uh, so, you know, he really, um, was a big part at the beginning. Also, a uh, gentleman, uh, Manu Guillaume of Domaine Guillaume Brew in Burgundy. Uh, we, by chance, happened to meet him in Vermont and we developed a fast friendship and he, uh, he taught us how to prune. He so he everybody was giving you cellar farming yeah. pruning tips. Exactly. So these guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's good to know them. Um, we're going to talk about the wines and a lot of the stuff that goes into all that in a second. But I'm curious from you because you did it. Are there any other regions that are making wine that? you know, has caught your attention or, you know, got off to a start that didn't seem likely. Like in a month or so, I'm having Maynard James Keenan on. He's growing wines in Arizona. I right. mean, that's a, well, Arizona. Yeah. And getting yeah. decent notices. Is anything happening like that? I hear about Texas. All 50 states are growing wine, some kind of wine now. Uh, Anything so notable? I, yeah, I think there's a lot that's happening. I mean, just in the Northeast there, uh, in addition to Vermont, which is very lively, uh, there's a movement in New Hampshire. 
there are some really wonderful things happening in Maine. Um, I think that there, uh, there's some people trying to do some good work in Massachusetts who are just starting. Um, Virginia, certainly there are people who are, who right. are starting That's to kind of got some traction. Yeah, Virginia. it's got some traction and they're shifting some things a little bit. Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I mean, I think that so there's a lot. I mean, Missouri, Missouri was the original wine region. Was it? With the original largest American wine region before California. There's still interesting stuff happening in Missouri. And I think more and more so as people begin to work with hybrids in a really thoughtful and respectful way. So when we get out of the main wine regions, which at this point now is Finger Lakes, you give some credit to Long Island, California, um, a few other places. Are you dealing mostly with grapes people not necessarily heard of and hybrids? I mean, in Michigan, I mean, I know on Long Island, they tried to grow Merlot and Capsaw, but thinking, but you have to work with what you're dealt with in that state, right? Right, right. And I would say that, uh, you know, for a long time, hybrids were the great apology. Nobody wanted to grow them, but they... Wait, that... why is it an apology? <laughs> I get why nobody wants yeah. to grow them, but sorry, we have to do these? It, it kind of. That would be the attitude. You'd go into a tasting room and it would people would be kind of sheepish about like, well, we don't have or we tried a Chardonnay and we can't really do that. But here's our white wine made from this unknown grape that um, is a hybrid and, you know, that sort of wins. <laughs> and, um, so that's why I think of it at that time as being like the great apology. Um, and, you know, I think for, and, and many places are still trying to do that. They're still trying to grow vinifera uh, because they really believe that that is. Were you is... ever compelled to do that? Like we, you're curious because there's some cool Italian white grapes that, you know, I'm sure you drank and experienced. Like, let's try it here. Did you do any of that? or? Yeah. At the very beginning, we started with some Riesling and Blaufrankisch in addition to the things that we knew would grow well. How'd it do? How'd they do? Terribly. Really? Terribly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they would yeah. they would survive as plants below ground, but they would take such a hard hit during deep freeze of winter that they would so would never you, have mature enough wood to bear fruit above ground. So when you think of the Finger Lakes, which grows some nice Riesling, you know, you figure, hey, it's north and cold up there. So Vermont, so is Vermont. It, it wouldn't work. Well, they have they have the protection of the lakes. That's, that's there. the and difference. So it's a very the particular environment that, that makes it possible for them. But it's not always possible for them. Sometimes they get yeah. a, hit hard. Not enough. an easy. Uh, it's not an easy uh, pass to hoe. No. Yeah, exactly. And and you know our neighbors to the north in Quebec. You know a lot of people are still work trying to work with vinifera, and the system that they have figured out is to do uh, working with geotextiles, and they bury the vines during the winter to protect them. Um, for us, that was not a route that we wanted to take uh, because you know you're really having to manipulate. Right, that's the vine, that's the not growing your of the mindset, vine, which we'll talk about. It's you know, so that wasn't appealing to us, uh, and I would say to the whole group of Vermont wine growers, that has not been appealing to anybody. Everybody has really wanted to take the vines at face value and grow them like a vine is meant to be grown in nature. Um, which I wanted to ask you. I mean, before we take a break, 
you've said, implied, and practiced, you didn't want to mimic other wine regions. As great as Bordeaux and Burgundy is, so I got to do what I got to do here. Um, everything you need in the state, the varietals, not having to do those tiles, I mean, it, it's all working. I would say so. I think that we have varieties that are well suited to where we are. They uh, survive the winter. It's not that they're immune to everything. Right. They're, I mean, they're hardier. They're, they're hardier. They're resistant to a lot of disease pressure, but they are not immune to those things. And if you're going to work with hybrids and plant hybrids, you have to remember that you also have to farm and you have to farm appropriately. Uh, We're going to talk about yeah. that. That's a big deal of, <laughs> you know, why deal. I want you yeah. here. But do, do you guys ever think science and say, and I have no idea when I throw these out, like, why don't we cross Marquette with Le Croissant or whatever? Do Or are those already crossed? Do you ever think of, let's take it the next steps, or that's not, you know, your, your biz or your liking? There are... So many people who are trained, good, um, wonderful, artful, trained horticulturists who do great breeding uh, that I'll speak for myself. Caleb can answer for himself. Um, I um, would love to leave that work to them. Okay. I think it's fascinating. I would love to learn even more One about it. One thing to but... implement and practice, but thought-wise, right. do, yeah. do you ever stand in the shower and go, I wonder what Marquette and Fronten it. I'm pretty sure it's already happening. Okay. Somebody's already doing it. I would think so. Yeah, me. and it's also, it is such a labor-intensive art. You really have to devote yourself to right. that, I think. It's not a casual it's thing. It's not a casual thing. And the scene hasn't been around forever, so people right. are starting to realize. Right. All right, we have to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Deirdre Heakin and Caleb Barber from La Garagista Wines in Vermont. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the important stuff, farming, winemaking, the winery, and the stuff that you're making. And that is a lot of stuff to cover. So um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another farm bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. 
Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guests, Deirdre Heakin and Caleb Barber, the proprietors of La Garagista in Vermont, technically Woodstock or no? What's the, oh, Mount Hunger? No. Barnard. Barnard. I'm getting close, right? (laughs) So Barnard, Vermont. Um, And at the end, we'll get to where people can get more info and, you know, what you're doing up there. Um, So I've learned a lot doing this show by sitting with people with you. And, you know, that's been the greatest pleasure um, in doing this. Um, And what I realized through the years in talking to people that, when we talk wine, first and foremost, you are a contadina, you are a farmer, you are a vigneron. Um, and that more now than ever, and sometimes only, it's all about what you do, you know, in the uh, vineyard. So tell me about, and I don't know if there was an evolution, but your commitments to farming. Um, and I don't want to get into labels like natural or whatever, but farming organically, biodynamically is not a thing. It's a practice. So, you know, tell me, did you think this from the beginning? Did you learn, you know, tell me what you're doing. So I would say, you know, we, when we started farming vegetables for our restaurant, Caleb's mother is a master gardener. Um, she's a fantastic gardener. And we learned a lot from her uh, and books that she would give us. Uh, and she was an organic gardener, um, grew up on a farm. Uh, I think that we basically didn't think of doing it any other way. Uh, was the farm organic? Like they were low intervention with, you know? Oh yeah. 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 It was old school. <laughs> oh yeah. Old school. Well, right. You didn't yeah. know better, but kind of ahead of its time that you exactly, were yeah. kind of drawn to having to do it. They stay true to their conviction. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we started out that way and it never occurred to us to farm any way differently. And I, I think I mentioned before that at some point I realized that the, if not all, the majority of the people on our wine list were farming biodynamically. And that was very curious to me. And I, both of us really wanted to sort of think about why are we drawn to these particular wines? Why do we keep choosing them for the list? What do we like about what's happening in the field for these people? And uh, because of that, we really started to make, well, we made that decision to to practice that kind of farming in conjunction with all the other elements that go along with it, like permaculture and forest edge ecology. Well, talk to me about that. What, yeah. I've read over and over. What what to you, because I think you mentioned it, what's whole farm and diverse agriculture? Is that everything you were just going to mention? Yeah, I mean, a whole, a whole farm is a holistic farm in which all the pieces speak to each other and feed each other. And in a biodynamic system, everything is... A within. Full, within and it is a full circle um so i think we think of a whole farm as being a complete circle as much as we can do that and that's what you're practicing and that and that's what we're practicing we have you know on our home farm 
we have all these different elements. We have, you know, flower gardens, we have vegetable gardens, we have orchard, we have the vineyard. Uh, when we had the restaurant, we had some livestock. Now we work with another farmer to do uh, rotational grazing so that we bring animals on the land because that's a really important aspect. We have a lot of wild animals on the land. Is that interesting? Is that taking organics and biodynamics to another level, like regenerative, when you introduce animals? Or I mean, everything has its definition, but the whole thing is to integrate everything. Right, and I would say that's very much a bi- biodynamic, you know, that is, philosophy. Falls under yeah, okay. it would fall under uh, biodynamic. I mean, bio- we have to remember that the term biodynamic is modern, but the practices are not. Right. You know, they go back. You can read uh, Virgil ripped them off, not ripped them off. But right. People were he, doing it. They were doing it long it before. Yeah. I mean, we found there's apparently a farmer mm. in our village of Barnard whose grandfather used to make a compost by stuffing his cow's horns with manure and burying them. He was not, he didn't know anything about Steiner. Really? Yeah. That, that That's was a crazy just coincidence. an old way of creating compost, um, a super active compost element that he knew about and was, had been passed down over from generation right. Interesting to generation. that, you know, yeah. it was there. Um, is whole farming another, uh, synonym for permaculture or biosphere or those are all different things it's all part of it it's it is. all part of it okay. yeah i mean permaculture is is not uh, everything no but it's uh you're working with perennial plants and that's a really especially when you're working with vines which are perennial plants it's important to have both perennial and annual plants uh that communicate with each other and feed each right. other so, you know, that is the permaculture aspect right. of that. Right. Um, does it take, I know the answer to this, but I want you to expand on it. The effort and expense, is it a higher expense to do this? And the effort to farm biodynamically and organically requires, you know, way more attention or you get into a groove. I'm, I'm- I'm sure you can do it in ways that are are as expensive or more expensive than conventional chemical farming, but um, I mean, from day zero, the, the first directive we operated under was no chemicals. Right. And um, we are our inputs, we use some copper, we use some sulfur in our sprays, but then the rest of our sprays are things that we make. We make compost teas from generally things that are growing in or immediately around each vineyard so that we can treat each vineyard with its own uh, pre-existing elements. Um, Was the property in good enough shape that you didn't have to bring anything back because you hear about people, you know, whose family farmed industrially and they wanted to go organic, so they had to go through a whole process. The your little estate stuff and your lake stuff um, was in good shape before you. So our home farm had been had once been part of a larger farm, but had not been farmed for many years, and in fact, the previous owner was trying to let it go back to forest. Uh, so. 
tons of good stuff going I mean, in the right have, direction. Yeah, we have t nettle, we have horsetail, all these <clears throat> plants that are uh, useful for taking care of uh, making teas, uh, plant teas and medicines. The two vineyards in the Champlain Valley that we took over in 2013 and that we still farm uh, were had had some conventional practices. Um, so there was a process of a few years of turning it over, turning it, it over. The right place. And, and it is amazing, you know, to take a piece of land like that and start working with these methodologies and practices. And the change that you see is crazy. I mean, if we weren't believers before, <laughs> the change we were... in what? Looking at the soil and the soil life. Once you plant, seeing the difference in the vibrancy, yeah. all of that stuff. Everything. The energetic everything, response. Right. Everything. Vines. So there was, in our Virgin's Vineyard, there was a block of Marquette that was doing, um, was really struggling, really, really struggling. It was riddled with uh, uh, really um, difficult fungal disease called Phomopsis <laughs> and had some anthracnose and it was just, it was not happy. The first, this is an acre of Marquette. The first vintage, we got 800 pounds from it, which is like nothing, nothing. right? Uh, after, by year three, we were at 5,000 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. By year six, we were at, I think we did 8,000 pounds yeah. that year. We, yeah, we had and that's not it a took, testament I know, to why. Right? And right? it took, it took, um, those six years to for those fungal diseases to disappear completely. Uh, now it is one of the healthiest blocks that we farm. It's a great story. It, it just it yeah. It's like <laughs> that is a great it's, story. Uh, it's so strong. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. That that's um, a great story. Um, I think now's a good time, Caleb. If you can help us, let's taste one of the wines. Talk about that, and then I want to get into the grapes, the winemaking, and all. You want to do the pet nap first? Let's do the pet nap first. The back of the bubbles first. Here. All right, we're gonna. All right, so set me up on this, Deirdre. What are this is? So the two wines that we brought today are both from the home farm, and I feel like when we the go, home farm is that property. That's the property bayou in the mountains. In the mountains, not down yeah. by Champlain. Exactly. So we have five vineyard parcels now okay uh two at the home farm two in the champlain valley and we just brought on a fifth parcel that is um also in the mountains actually a little higher altitude than our home farm vineyards do you own all of these or you contract so we um one of the vineyards of uh, the home farm vineyards we own the second vineyard we of course i always have a hard time with the word own <laughs> yeah, yeah we have the privilege of farming right uh, the uh, second vineyard is a project we do with friends of ours who live down here in the city, uh, but they're all part of the home farm wines. The one of the vineyards in the Champlain Valley is ours. The other we lease. And then this new vineyard is a lease project. And also. the people you lease from, obviously, you determine like sensibilities. They farm and do let you do or do what you want type thing it's I, really important to them that we are farming organically sure sure yeah. i mean yeah. why would you do it yeah. with them? all right so let's literally look at the label 
first set up exactly what we're drinking. If somebody went to a store, they're going to ask for what? So this is called house music. It's a pétillon naturel, which means it's done in the ancestral method. It's a first fermentation in bottle. I believe it is the 2022. The thing that we've really been trying to work with at the home farm is doing field blend. Uh, most of our wines are single variety. This is the one wine that we really focus on, the blending. So it's a, a blend of six different varieties, three red and three white. We do every year that we can a sparkling and a still, so sister wines, which are the two. So we we're tasting today. the pet nat, the sparkling. We're tasting we'll this, taste yeah. towards the end of the show. All right, so six different varietals. Six different varieties. So uh, it, for the reds, we have Marquette, Frontenac Noir, and Saint Croix. For the whites, we have La Crescent, Frontenac Gris, and Frontenac Blanc. The third red was called what? Saint Croix or Saint Croix, oh, depending okay. on. Okay. <laughs> so from. let's let's do a quick evaluation. Yeah. I'm looking at this, and it's kind of a neat purple, right? Yeah. You know, teeny bit translucent, not brooding, but not light light. Um, tell me, I suck at this, so I defer to you. What's on the nose here? Oh my gosh. Um, today for me, I wonder what kind of day it is. Actually, if it's a wow. It's a um, little farmyardy. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Minerally. Minerally and farmyardy. So, Not crazy farmyardy. But no, good. no. So. But I'm getting more of the mineral elements. This is grown on volcanic soils. So we have everything from clay and limestone and shale to granite to amphibolite, garnet, quartzite, gneiss. So all of that. Um, is... We have all of that. All right. Let's give it a... Let's throw it's a it... little violety, like yes, candy well, violet. It's hard not to be drawn that way when you look at the color a right bit. and there is a little bit of a when you set color it, there's a sort of lavender yeah. tinge to the rim which is interesting all light all right let's we put the schnoz in the glass let's throw it over the tongue let's talk mouthfeel and palate descriptors so nice what's the word i use for bubbles effervescence what do you use so there's yeah. a nice not yeah. overpowering not flattish you know really right. nice on the tongue um to me there seems like decent amount of acidity or something there you know Very which feels so. nice <laughs> yeah. on, right yeah. feels nice on the mouth yeah. which prompts me to want to eat something with this yeah um so is this a typical mouthfeel for your pet nuts yes i would say so yeah. um one of the things to recognize when you work with cold climate hybrids is that acidity is a big part of their story and a big part of their structure. And it is one of the reasons why they have great aging ability. Yes. So, so this is a baby. Tell me about, do the palate descriptors match any of the uh, nose descriptors? I think so. What, uh, what's there? I get uh, the sort of fruitiness... Um, I get woodland berry, you know, which I get a little. I have no idea what that is. I know what like, a berry is. But it's like what... an Italian, they call it frutti di bosco. Yeah. Uh, okay. Like a black raspberry. I get black raspberries yeah. more than blackberries. Got it. Yeah. This. So there's that right. differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's another little berry called thimbleberry, which grows on the edge of the forest that we have up where we are. And it's a, it's a kind of raspberry. Right. Um, that has a really interesting little flavor. 
Um, you know, I feel like I'm getting some of those volcanic elements, yeah. that that minerality, yeah. little dustiness um, on the palate. Is any one of the six blends predominant or it just varies on the vintage and how you blend it that year? Yeah. Like this yeah. is not a Marquette driven pet net. I, I think, I think right. this is a really balanced pet net of the six varieties. I would not say that one is speaking Dominant. more than another. Right. To me. Is it. So you make this every year. Is it always about this color or it goes lighter, darker that the grapes that you work with? The, these tend to stay the same color. We okay. do have some wines that vary in, in color based on vintage, but these stay pretty consistent. All right, so let's talk about a little more of what's in this wine and, you know, how you make pet nets and the other stuff. Um, you know, you're obviously working with cold, hardy grapes, and you mentioned a few of them. Um, let's talk about that. When you got there, you had the restaurant, you were gardening, and then you started growing stuff. This was the stuff that was around when you visited that and you realize quickly, if I'm going to make wine, these are the grapes I'm making wine with. Yes. I mean, I think you find that all of the vineyards in Vermont currently are co-planted to more than one variety because it's new and people are still trying to figure out what grows best where. So the six varieties we planted, we knew were viable. They were growing already in the state, but we weren't sure which would grow better in our location uh, or or if there would be differences. So we so decided to So what do you do plant. about that? You plant evenly, like 10 rows of this, 10 rows, you, you know, because you want to see if the Frontenac is more hardy than the Marquette. <laughs> Is that how, is it a little throw it out and see what happens? Exactly. I wouldn't say we necessarily planted evenly. Okay. Uh, yeah. In terms of like 10, 10, and 10. But we did plant a sampling of all of those things. And we found that all of them did really well in that location. I'm not sure if I had to choose again with that information, if I would choose just one of those things. Right. Uh, to plant in that area. Uh, I think they're all, you know, really so interesting. we've mentioned more than once you have a vineyard on the mountain and property and then down by the lake. Does that go for all varietals or does something grow better at the lower elevation or... Just differently. Just differently. differently? Just Which differently. is great. Yeah, they just have different expressions. So you won't not plant something lower because it's, you know, whatever. It's Right, right. we haven't found or that. Or opposite. Yeah, we haven't right. found that in the sites that we work with that there's something that doesn't work or something that works so much better than another thing. Everything we've planted uh, or have inherited uh, has been really interesting. So different. this particular pet nat, it's a field blend with six varietals. When we talk about your other wines... We're talking not field blends necessarily, and we're talking about, you know, one or two of the varietals. Um, just roll through the varietals. There's Marquette. I mean, what are the things you've been working with through the years? Because people taste this stuff. They don't hear it. Right. I know. You, they you know, don't. that's why I, it's kind of base, but I want you to kind yeah. of walk me through it. Yeah. So we grow seven 
different varieties altogether, and uh, or actually eight now with the newest vineyard. Um, right. So we grow Marquette, La Crescent. Uh, I would say those are two of the most primary okay. uh, that we grow and that other people are growing in the state. Do you have a little more of that planted or not necessarily? Not necessarily. But those yeah. are but maybe, primary. Yeah, they're, they're they, primary. They have some history. Yeah, maybe, maybe maybe we do have a little bit more of those planted. Then there are the three Frontenacs uh, or the three sisters or the three Furies, <laughs> depending on how you think of them. There's Frontenac Noir, Frontenac Gris, and Frontenac Blanc. Um, so it What's operates. What's the difference between Gris and Blanc? Just a little pinkish uh, or something? Yeah. So the Gris gets very coppery in color. Uh, the skin color is like really copper. The Blanc is more pearlescent green. Um, both really pretty um, and can make really pretty wines. Are they aromatic? Uh, they are less ar aromatic than, say, the La Crescent. Okay. The La Crescent is the. La Crescent and Brianna, which is another great variety we work with, I would say are the two most aromatic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's also the Saint Croix that we grow. What's the eighth one you said in the newest uh, vineyard? That's Lu not the Saint Croix. No, it's Louise Swenson. That's the name of That's it? That's the name of it. And Why it's that a, name? Uh, it's the name of the wife of the horticulturist ah. who uh, made the crossing crossings uh and he also uh worked with the brianna which is the name of his granddaughter so we were talking earlier about hybrids and mixing existing so somebody's yeah. been doing that right oh absolutely i mean it takes 30 to 40 years historically for a hybrid to be crossed over many many years to come up with a wine grape so the name of it is louise swenson, swenson and that's who that's the the wife of the horticulturist. Imagine Elmer. Elmer. Swenson. Imagine if like he named it after his uncle, like Irving Goldberg, and you were stuck with the Irving Goldberg and, grape. But yeah, I mean Louise Swenson <laughs> is that's a nice name, right? Um, so those are the predominant, the seven grapes yes, and all yeah. of that, and that is there are so many things that you know. There's the cider and the you know, the pet mats and your own vintage, your projects, which we'll talk about, you know, with all the other women. But what those grapes go into mostly all the wines? Yes, we uh, all of our wines, almost all of our wines are with a state fruit are made with a state fruit. We do have a project called Field Studies in which we collaborate with other farmers. OPP. OPM, other people's fruit. <laughs> other people's fruit. Right. Uh, and that's a real collaboration to understand more about the different terroirs in Vermont. So mostly terroir and not so much varietal. Correct. The similar. Well, or a little variety above. in that terroir. Right, right, right. right? That's, that's. Um, but it's about place for sure. It's so field place. studies, the name of that project. Yes. How, how long you've been doing that? Only a few years. We've been doing that maybe five years. Yeah. I think, I think how many like different that. people are you working with? Uh, well, we have worked with up to one, two, three, four, four, four or five different people. We work with one farmer consistently every year. He actually planted a vineyard for us down in Brattleboro where Caleb is from. And so we're making wines from that every year. And then it's kind of catch as catch can. If somebody has a little bit extra, uh, somebody who's farming, right, we really appreciate. Yeah, we're, so we're interested in opening. Maybe this is too narrow of a question, but from doing the field 
study project, is there one or two revelations that you came away with? Like, listen, we've been farming our own land, mountain, lake, but we've worked with these other guys. I mean, did, did something come up or about that, you know, was new or different to you? I, I Yes, because the expressions are really different. I think it's also... That's obvious. Different, yeah. A different property is going to... Yeah, and so that that's is a very, fair revelation, but anything yeah. crazier than that? That there's a difference making wine that you farm and from wine that you don't farm. And but I'm very curious about that. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'm still grappling with that. I mean, but I is think that it, an emotional thing or is it really kind of a uh, out of emotion technical it's thing? It's a sensory it's, experience. It's a sensory experience, but it also is a technical Fair. thing. That uh, because when you're farming the fruit, you're seeing it every day. I think you understand it in a way that you have to learn in working with somebody else's fruit. So I think maybe that process also takes longer, uh, at least in my experience, uh, to, which is what makes it exciting. Um, it's a real investigation of what is this? What wine does this want to be? I'm different not seeing process. you every day. <laughs> yeah, it's different a different process. It's a different and process. process. And all that. That, that's it's interesting. a different process. And you're not seeing the day-to-day -day things. You just don't, you understand it in a different way. You have a different lens. And right. that's that's been really interesting. But it's great for you to understand and learn it where is. you are and what you're doing yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, all right, so... You're making a variety of wines, co-ferments, ciders. Let's try to talk about everything as much as possible. We know where you are. We know what the varietals you're working with. Um, tell me about the cider thing. You make straight-up ciders and co-ferment ciders? So we do one uh, straight cider, which isn't really a straight cider because it's a Solera cider. Which means that you love Solera. Yeah, we'll talk we about love that Solera. In a yeah, oxidative. So, <laughs> yes. So there's the Solera cider. Uh, then we have five or six others that are co-ferments, and that family is growing all the time as we can experiment. We grow pears, apples, peaches, sour cherries, and plums on the property. So for us right now, we have uh, a lot of apple and grape. I was going to say, you just mentioned a lot of fruits, but yeah. you're using the varietals we talked about for yes. your apple and grape co-ferments. Exactly, exactly. And some of those are ciders that are fermented on grape skins, post-pressing. Some of them what are... What is that called? That's a project. Um, uh, Vined Pum. Vined Pum, uh, right. Yeah, which is... Tell me uh, about that a little. Yeah, so that is based on an old Northern Italian uh, style of uh, making wine in which they would ferment cider on red wine skins that they had. So this is in the Alto Adige, Trentino, Piemonte, and Aosta, where they grow fruit trees also. Is that like cider piquette? Um, no, Not it's just like... Where um, you're using the pomace and the skins for flavor? I, well, I mean, I guess... I guess you could kind of think of it that way, but there's no water involved, which That's is a big part of piquette. Yeah. Uh, so you're just taking, you're taking the skins from your pressings and putting it into the cider and it just creates this whole other conversation within the cider. So we do that. We also blend wine and cider together, uh, right. typically 50, 50. We have a couple different cuvées that do that. We have one of our newest ones is a, uh, red Marquette Petnat that is uh, fermented with Marquette peaches. Petnat. 
Yeah. Where you're adding peaches. Yeah. And so they it ferments on the peaches, and then we withdraw the peaches and bottle it as a pet net. And that's been one of our new favorite It sounds, things. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That the was first the, wines that you were making, were they still or pet net or both? Early, uh, early on. Early first vintage was all still. It was still. Uh, we did do a sparkling. We did a champagne method. The second <clears throat> vintage. Then, by 2013, so four years in, we got interested in trying to do pet nets, and we we did that. Right. Started doing that that year. Um, which was kind of early on in the pet net thing. I mean, you go to it friends' was. houses and say, "I brought a pet net," and they go, "What?" It was, and it was and uh, early in America also. Yeah. Yeah, there were I mean, maybe to the whole game. five or ten of us who were making pet nets in American wine at that it's crazy. time. crazy. Yeah, it's and we were greatest. all talking. It was great. We all talked to each other, like, how are you doing this? What right. are you? So what sugar it was a nice community. It was a nice community, I yeah. mean, pet nets yeah. are awesome for, you know, as a gift, for a dinner, food. I mean, it's just, you know. They're wonderful. Anyone I bring them. them to, they're like, what is this? Where do I get that? Yeah. It's like, all right, calm down. I'll get you the info. <laughs> all right. So we talked about domain wines, pet nets, uh, the Vin Ed Palm, which is co-ferments over the grape stuff. Um, let's get a little into oxidative wines, all right? Yes, yes. So there's a thing called Lost Causes and Desperate Cases. Yes. That's like your oxidative wine project. How yeah. long have you been doing that? Well, it started in, uh, let's see, our Solera goes back, uh, one of them goes back to 2014. We didn't necessarily know that that's what we were going to be doing with it, but uh, they were wines that didn't fit the window of what we felt the wines we were making were. So, for example, we make a wine called Vino Yanku, which is a skin contact La Crescent. Uh, we had some La Crescent from that vineyard that just didn't, it wasn't the Vino Yanku. It didn't tell that story. So we held it back, kept it in a demijohn, and just let it do its thing. Uh, and we would do that every time we felt like something uh, wasn't within that, that particular wine. And in 2018, uh, our colleague, our uh, uh, Camila uh, Carillo, came on uh, as the assistant wine grower. And we asked her, okay, so if... And when you start making your own wine, and we're guessing you're going to make your so own wine. So she was an input and kind of absolutely. an inspiration to work oh, forward on oxidative. Absolutely, because when we asked her what what wine excites you, she said sherry. And you were all in on that? Yeah, like it was like, stuff. oh, yeah, okay. that's a great idea. Um, so she and I started tasting through all of these things we had been saving, and we're like, oh, yeah, that could be a sherry. Yeah, that could be, let's make rancio with that. Let's put it outside for the summer. Um, so uh, she was very instrumental in uh, that evolution. So from 18 lines. on, it's you've made a commitment. Yeah. I was saw you at Character, I think it was in November, and you said, yes. try these. Yeah, yeah. I think, was she there, Camille? She, she wasn't Someone there. else was there. Maybe somebody yeah. who works with you. But they, they were terrific. Um, so when you look at lost causes and desperate cases, how many different things are you making? Right now we have four. Okay. Uh, and I can imagine that that will increase over time as <laughs> I think we're now on label 37. Uh, really? We make about 35 different wines. Um, yeah. 
we talked about field studies. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is your opportunity to kind of look at the land around there. And now talk to me about something that I think is very cool, and it's your other projects, which besides talking about you being an author, which we'll get to, and you have a new book, you are a mentor, and you have a trail that you've left behind you of bodies that are doing a good job with this. And, you know, I'll name names and then we'll tie it together. La Montanuela, if I pronounced it right, Lilith yes. Disciple. These are women that have worked with you, that have learned the trade, that are either a La Garagista joint or they're on their own or whatever. Um, tell me about that. Obviously, you know, earlier on, these people were working with you. They had a great time. You felt the need, I guess, you know, to teach and embrace and it really stuck, and it's a good thing now. It, so we've had a long history of mentorship. Uh, when we had our restaurant, that was something that Caleb and I felt really strongly about, and we um, we kind of didn't know it was going to happen, but we ended up being able to work with a lot of uh, younger people, high school students in particular, uh, who then stayed on with us as college students and have really? now become adult friends who are married cool. and have kids. Um, so that was really rewarding and we knew that that was, um, something that was important to us to, to be able to give back in that kind of way. Uh, so we have tried to do the same thing with people who, uh, work with us in wine and the three women that you mentioned, the three labels you mentioned, they, uh, are all still currently affiliated with us. Um, both um, Anna of Lilith and uh, Cami of La Montanuela are assistant wine growers. Uh, Willa of Disciple is um, an amazing graphic designer. She and her mother do all our labels and are working on a, a rebrand for us right now, logo and all kinds of exciting things. And Willa has helped uh, really grow our cider program and co-ferment program. That's her her interest. So uh, she's been really instrumental. That's a more uh, cider focus. Yes, that's yeah. uh, she's been really helpful in, in that department. So are these Grupo Garagista things? They are. I mean, you technically yes. have yeah. this thing. That, Little collective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how does that work? You let them do their thing. You're all together. But, you know, if Camila wants to do this, 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 it's like, do what you want, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's there. You'll help where you can. Exactly. I think we kind of think of it like a publishing house where you have the umbrella and they are each their own editors um, and have their right. own imprints. Right. So they're in complete control of what they, they do. We provide space. We provide support. We provide compliance. You know, all those things that are really difficult when you're first starting out. And, you know, they, Camila now is, you know, she's looking to uh, build on her own land where she's planting a vineyard and, you know, she'll be doing more of her own project, but, uh, we all love working together. We make a really good team. It's a great thing. So we hope that we all hope that that goes on into the future in some capacity. So tell me two last things before I talk to you about your upcoming book, um, physical structure. When you started, you know, maybe you had a press, this thing, that thing, What's there now? Is everything there that you need that you could do what you want? 
basically, we you just still need, have to buy stuff be, it'd be or nice to borrow have some more square footage. <laughs> okay. the, the, the winery is not large, so it's very build cozy. And add? I mean, I know it's money, but right there, yeah, there's space, and and we. So you'll get to that. And hopefully. the winery we have now was built in 2014, and we included um, features in the design to facilitate an expansion at some point. Right. So, which probably will have to come sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, the last couple of years we've been at capacity. Yeah, and, I would imagine. Well, to that point, and I hate to ask this question, but I want people to have a perspective. How much wine are you making a year? I mean, that's kind of public. People could dig that up. But, you know, because you're big in your thoughts and what you do, you may be small in your overall output, but not so small for what you're doing. So give people an idea. I mean, how much stuff are we pushing out? Yeah, so we're at about, in a good year, we're at about 1,000 cases right now. Everything? Uh, everything. For, everything. Jesus, so, that's less than I labels. thought. Yeah. yeah, so it's oh really God. tiny. So people, this is some pretty well thought out, well made stuff. There's not a lot of it, so you got to right. get your ass on it, right? <laughs> yes, you if do. If you want it. <laughs> yeah. God, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, so. And to your point, you'll be able to increase, hopefully, production with space and all right, that. Right, right. Um, I'm a little floored on that. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, there's so much more stuff we can talk about in the detail. But, you know, we got to move along. And I do a thing called the wine list. And I've done this from day one of the show. And I've done it to almost 300 guests. And I've asked 300 guests the same five questions. And I have a historic database. And I post it every week. And it's a, like you can go back to two years ago when Pascaline was on and get her five answers. You know, you could, you know, get whatever. So I, I'm going to ask you five questions. I don't want you to spend a lot of time on it. I don't want you to dwell on it. I want you to, you know, give me what comes out. I'm going to go to you first, Deirdre, and then you, Caitlin. So what are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you trying? What do you have to drink? Whether it's for biz, you know, I got to try these ciders or whatever. What's what's like now? So I would say that I am drinking uh, a lot of oxidative wines. Okay. Uh, one of my uh, you're fav- a little obsessed with that right yes, now. Yes, a little, little, <laughs> little okay. obsessed with those right now. Okay. So that's something I'm really interested in. Um, I would also say. Um, Really good Chardonnay. Okay. Really interested. In, so to, to that, yeah. like what? Is it Burgundy or yeah, is Burgundy it? Yeah, Burgundy or I'm interested in give me, like what's Give me ha- a specific thing or two. And um, we just had a beautiful Chardonnay made by uh, a friend in Oregon. Okay. Uh, a label called Perkins Harder. Oh, I, never um, I haven't even had a chance to tell her how wonderful it was. See, that's why I do this. Yeah. So people can discover. We had a, a beautiful Chardonnay from our friend Alex Krause at Birikino, uh that was really stunning. Is that California? Um, also California. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we this grape that we have called Brianna, uh, while it is nothing like Chardonnay, it has some similarities, so uh, I find that I'm wanting to taste those things because I'm interested in that wine becoming uh, a longer aging wine and where it can go and being inspired by that. I would say I, I, I'm looking to um, uh, white Coteron also for that. Well, uh, any, any, any Coteron white yes. is a cool wine. Yeah, you know? um, and I would say, you know, that 
also I gravitate towards that right now in terms of our red wines uh, as well. Um, sparkling. All right, that's good. Yeah, any sparkling bubbles. Sparkling what? Bubbles, 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 okay. bubbles. Give me a few answers. What are you drinking now? Yeah. Obviously, you're sharing some of that, but what about you, you? Yeah. Um, well, one thing I've been uh, having to taste recently is the 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 new pet nets that are coming the 2023 pet nets i'm just starting to disgorge those now your stuff yeah so our stuff you have to so every year it's kind of a get reacquainted period with that but we did have we just recently had a chardonnay from floral terrains a skin contact what is that floral terrains is the maker is the maker on long island Island. yeah do you know about these guys so i I'm a pretty well-informed person. Long Island's our backyard. I never yeah. heard of it. Yeah, yeah so they're a really small. Floral Terrains, T-E-R-R-A-I-N-S. A-N-E-S. A-N-E-S. And they're making a shard? They did a skin contact. Skin contact. Chardonnay, a 2019 that we had a week or two ago that was just Well, it tasted like a Friulian. A freely oh yeah so i'm going to be bite. redundant that's why i do this for yeah. discovery because yeah. people hear that like me i'm going to go after the show and figure that out all right second question the goofiest favorite wine and food pairing not what you think is a good wine and food pairing but what you like what you like you guys are foodies and you guys are wine people if you f this question up or say um a lot or stutter then i'm shutting down right <laughs> go ahead you go first me no, I oh, said yeah. you go oh, first. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Your okay. favorite uh, wine and food pairing. My favorite wine and food pairing uh, right now. Uh, can I give you two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any um, answer you can give me So more. I would say um, hmm, some kind of oxidative white uh, with um, raclette. Okay. So like it holds a, up a, to that richness like and smelliness. Like a Sauvignon, like something from the Jura. Uh, would be my first toy. You know, that. That's is like, I, I one love each. That. One each. Is, go ahead. Fried chicken sandwich and bubbles. Not the first guy who said that, by the way. I'm sure. First yeah. person who said that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I had, I told you, I had uh, Matthew Roland Billicard on pizza yes. and champagne. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Andy. That's a great, oh, yeah. yeah. That's a great. Uh, all right. Third question. Uh, favorite wine restaurant? and or a bar and here is the deal i'm not asking you it's not favorite anymore give me some places you've been that you like great selection great knowledge great people great vibe this is not your top three or whatever because i don't want you to bump into somebody chase sinzer at claude and how come you didn't mention me they're all good but what what you know what sticks out give me something in vermont give me something in your travels well, if I can, can I say my own restaurant from uh, from a while ago was my favorite wine restaurant because of all the wines that we served. The restaurant? Yeah, that we had. That we had. Yeah. I know the name, yeah. but I forgot it. What was um, the name of it? Osteria Pani Salute. Right. Um, so th- that, that was the type of place that yeah, you would love to walk into. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, oh gosh, well, uh in Vermont, uh, there is a lovely little restaurant called Mayday in Burlington okay. that is doing um, some really great stuff. Um, they've been nominated before for James Beard. Nice. Uh, there's also a, a newer place that is close to us called Putnam's Vineyard, which is a new wine bar. And they are 
uh, really focused on female winemakers. Uh, so they're doing cool stuff. That, they're doing really cool stuff. Those are the answers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really are, love. You know, that's love what I'm what looking for. Yeah. What you can sort out. Can you yeah. add to that or you'll... Oh, yeah. We've got a couple of favorite spots in Montreal. Go ahead. Vin Lapin. Alma. Yeah. Alma. Alma and uh, Vamo Lapin. How yeah. far is Montreal from you guys? Three uh, hours. About three hours. Drive or yeah. fly? Drive. Uh, drive. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, hey, let's, yeah. on a Tuesday, you'll say, let's yeah. go up to Vermont if you have the time. I mean, Quebec, Montreal. Yeah. Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I would say also, in addition to those two, Tinkset, which is also oh, part yeah. of the Alma family. Tinkset? Tinkset. That's Set, their yeah. wine bar. Um, Does anything in New York? to the top of your mind oh yeah i mean chambers we're gonna be i was there gonna tonight. say yeah. that that yeah, yeah. you yeah. know people say chambers four horsemen yeah blah, 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 yeah exactly like, all right good answers on that i told you that i post these answers and i have a database all right here's the fourth question favorite all-time wine when i structured the question a million years ago when i had no clue what i was doing i wanted to know the rarest most expensive wine you drank i don't give a crap about that i want to know the both of you those wines that were gateways that influenced you that changed the way of that you thought about wine that are important to this day to what you do and it could be more than one what what's that what's that you know wine that you know it wasn't a 99 Rumier blah blah it was something in Italy because of blah blah there there are two that come to mind immediately and one is the Montevertine Pergola Torte okay one of the greats um yep and a wine that really time and vintage uh yes and no um but it goes back to your Italy early days yeah and it was actually really informative in pushing me to want to understand fermentation and the production side of wine because I wanted to understand how that wine came to be. And then the other is um, the Lopez Diredia whites, um, the mm. older whites. Right. Well, they are, all come out old. Right. Right. Uh, they're not oxidized, so that's why you don't like them, right? I love <laughs> that. Right. All right, what about you? Uh, the two that sort of float to the top of my brain are... Uh, I remember having a Chateau Moussard a number of years ago that kind of just was so lovely. That's a And, 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 yeah. uh, and also, um, I don't know, a handful of uh, iterations of Trebbiano, which is one of my Abruzzo? favorite grapes. Yeah, Trebbiano de Bruzzo, but also a lot of some Tuscan expressions like the Anatrino. I was going to say the Anatrino, uh, yeah. Trebbiano. Yeah. That's a good... Just, uh, you know, it's a classically that's un- a good like under category yeah. underrated yeah. grape, but uh, I think appreciated by so many I for what it can become. Kiera Pepe out not that long ago. Oh yeah, and, you know, just staring at her and the wines. Like, when are we drinking? That? Yeah. All right, last question, and you guys should be able to handle this. The question is: Recommend to me the best wine around fifteen, twenty, twenty-two bucks retail. So I'm mm. looking for value. Listen. My kids are in their mid-late 20s. They can't show up at a party now at that age with crappy supermarket wine, but they can't afford like 50, 60 bucks. So how do you wow at 
15, 18, 22. You can give me a region. Muscadet kind of pulls it off for the price. You can give me a maker. You can give me a category. I need you to break it down by a red recommendation and a white recommendation. And by the way, do you have any of that? So let's throw that in. Right. So, okay. So if we want to go our direction, um, it, I would say like if you're buying from us at the farm, we do uh, a co-ferment called Novello that is cider fermented on red and white skins. It's a beautiful little rosé. Uh, we've got it at 23 Okay. Bucks, so um, that's cool. Uh, I was thinking of... That's super um, cool. Yeah. The problem was, is you make a thousand total cases <laughs> of everything. Oh, yeah. So there's so, not a lot of... Yeah. Maybe 40 cases of that. Uh, then I was thinking of the Unlitro, the uh, Ambalaya. That? that is the project um, in the Marema of uh, Lisabetta Foradori. And uh, it comes in a liter bottle, uh, and it is uh, a lovely, fruity red. It's always good, and, and that's a reasonably priced. It is. It comes between. And she makes wine central north. Uh, well, she's up in Trentino. But, right. Yeah. Which is so. This is a so project she, has she a does. Project. Yeah, she it's does. Great this to for hear that. So and it's reasonable. Um, that's reasonable. All um, right. So there's your red and your white. There's the red. What about? You, do what you, can, I mean, if I were talking to a young person who is saying, how do I, how do I identify a bottle of wine that fills this role? And I was like, you got to find a, a wine shop with people who are, who want to talk about wine in it, but give them some pointers. Like I need to take bubbles. I need to not spend a fortune. What do you have in the Cremant category? You know, or what do you know? What or that store recommends Cremant is an option you don't know about. Right. So you gave me a very coy but the greatest answer, and I try to emphasize this as much as possible. Go to places like wine stores that are neighborhoody, where you sense it's not like a supermarket or a bottle king. Yeah. Talk to people, but to your point, tell them what you like. I'm into sparkling. Yeah. I'm into, and they will they go out of their way to curate, attain, yeah, and, and do all that. And same thing with sommeliers. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I want to yeah. try something different. Well, we yeah. have wine from the Canary Islands in Vermont. Oh, well, what's the Vermont? You know, yeah, be, exactly. So that's your answer. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll take that. All right. So as I mentioned, we post your answers on social media. I do. You know, I promote the show the whole week, and then towards the end, I list all of our uh, wine list stuff so people can do that. And then, like I said, uh, there's a database of it. All right, so before I let you go, and hopefully we can eat something, um, we do a thing called the Weekly Wine Sip. It's the perfect opportunity for me to let a winemaker like you to bring their wares in. We tasted the uh, House Music Pet Nat, which is on the estate property. Yeah. And now we're going to taste the house music still wine. Now, two things. Is there much of a difference between this and the Pet Nat as far as blending? No. Okay. No difference. So this is a non-sparkling, very similar color. Mm-hmm. Teeny bit more translucent. So what's the vintage on this? Also, oh, actually, this is 2021, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't ask you this. People think Vermont wines. They go, all right, Vermont wines. You know, I don't know much about it. Probably can't age that well. Talk to me about the ageability of certain wines that you know are made for aging. Yeah. Like I wouldn't I, age a pet nat for 20 years. 
Well, I, I, maybe you, could, you could. You could age one of our pet nets okay. for 20 years. So that's, they just have that the checks the box. The right wines are ageable. But yeah. ageability of, you know, the still wines? The still wines, I think they're, I mean, we just are, we have so much beautiful acidity mm. in these wines that, I mean, the jury's out because we, nobody has wine older than. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, like we don't have anything older than 15 years so that, yeah, we, yeah. we're not sure how long they can age, but things that we're tasting that are 10 to 15 years old are still, um, very youthful. So I suspect that, um, of the still wines that they can continue on. So I got to tell you that I'm a huge pet nat lover and I love your wines, but I like this wine still better than the pet now oh, and i love them both yeah but yeah. if i had a you know pick your favorite yeah. kid which yeah. i'm not going to i would yeah. say you know i i don't know why i yeah. think for some reason i don't know the fruit comes out so let's do the evaluation again color similar you know that kind of deep but not brooding purple um lighter edges um nose same stuff as the uh for me it's a little more perfuming yes and I'm going to say that the uh, that's the La Crescent in the field blend. Mm -hmm. That's that coming seems to come me. out more in the still than the. Well, I think this is also really important uh, with our wines, wines, well, any wine, but, uh, wine coming from Vermont. We enjoy them fresh and bright like this 22 of the pet nat that we brought. But with time, like the 21 here that we're tasting, they settle down, they, the more fruit comes benefits out. From benefits from a teeny bit of bottle age. It benefits, yeah, yeah. They, they all benefit from bottle age. I mean, if we could wait five years to release everything, I would. Um, that's not possible uh, so, yet. <laughs> well, you'll get there. So mouthfeel, it's like a real medium. You know, it's not medium plus minus. It's just right there the way it should be. You expect that. Um, palette. You still get similar things that you get on the nose. Does that perfuminess translate into the perfuminess of what? The fruit, the violets, whatever? Yeah, and I also get the, the perfuminess of the La Crescent always translates to stone fruit for me. And I'm getting a little bit of that apricot stone fruit See, in I'm the palate so on this. Unversed on those grapes that I can't, you know, it's a right, learning right, thing for me. Right. Um, and the next time I take taste la croissant i'll say oh yeah you know that type of thing um food pairing with this oh that's interesting um well the first thing that comes to my mind is duck roasted with uh apricots i uh, it's funny how you um hesitated for a second well because like i said yeah. earlier you guys are wine and food people without thinking about it you're in front of it and it took you yeah. a second but that's Duck is perfect for this. Yeah. And the apricot. What else? What else would I, what would you do? What would it? you think? Yeah. Oh. As the chef. Slow roasted fatty pork shoulder. Mm hmm Okay. That'd be great. I mean, this, the acidity and this. Can help with for the fattiness, fattiness and the yeah. full flavor yeah. and all also that. Also some, yeah. some slow cooked meatballs, you know, beef or veal mm -hmm. or something. And, uh. So slow cooked meatballs is what in the sauce for a long time? Yeah, and, and not too tomatoey a sauce, more like a, a broth, a stock reduction ah, with a little tomato in it. That sounds good. Yeah, so it could hold up to that. Yeah. 
So, Deirdre, I forgot to talk to you and mention that you are a fairly prolific writer and author. And, you know, in discussing everything early on, you got your master's MFA in writing and all that. And you have a few interesting books out there already. But I want to talk to you about you have a book coming out or it's out. Uh, you're, it's funny. I forgot too. <laughs> I always forget that. Oh yeah, I'm a writer also. Um, so I am. I'm currently working on a book that okay. will be out in the beginning of 2025. Okay, if all goes according to plan. So that's this uh, time next year. Yeah, sometime exactly. Around. And uh, tell me about it. So the working title right now is "Love Letter from Hybridia." <laughs> and uh, so we can kind of guess what maybe that's, that's like gonna Timothy be about. Chalamet is going to be in that movie <laughs> in five years, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, and so it's part memoir, as is most of my stuff, uh, but it's also really looking at the natural history of hybrids and their uh, American roots. And so two things: yeah. a lot of the things we talked about, yes, is. Kind it's gonna of in be, there it's gonna with be in there. a lot of detail and a lot of detail, deeper. Dive. And then we talked about you know hybrids are hardy in the cold, and that's what you work with. So this is really your dissertation understanding and yeah, and and going back to their um, origin here in America, you know, going back two hundred plus years ago, and their impact not only on American wine but their impact on European wine their rise and fall from favor. Uh, and what I'm seeing is their rise again and how they're going to be really, how they are already are really important in terms of everything that we're dealing with, uh, with climate chaos. So give me the name again. Love Letter from Hybridia. All right, so you will stay in touch with me and this time next year you'll remind me and I, I will... will uh, help you promote it a little, or maybe you'll come back and talk about it. Yeah. Be give great. me an update. All right. We like this wine a lot. Um, thank you for bringing them in. Um, we got to wrap up the show. Uh, we got to get it, get you out here soon. You have a busy uh, rest of the day and night. Let me do a quick wrap up and then I want to get info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape nation.com. That's Sam at the grape nation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. If you like the show, please leave a review. Um, follow us on Instagram, where I'll be posting a lot of the wine list and you know everything going on here. At S Ben Ruby um, on Twitter, it's at Ben Ruby. I know it's two different handles, but you can reach us on both with the hashtag the Grape Nation. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. But I'm finding out nobody's on Facebook anymore. <laughs> um, I don't know why. Um, as I mentioned enough times, and we'll continue, we'll post Deirdre and Caleb's wine list and the wines that we tasted today so you can get more info and seek them out um, on all our, all our social media sites. Guys, if we want to find out more about Garagista wines. I'm guessing there's two ways. There's an online maybe web thing, and then there's social media. So tell me all the places we can go. So online, our website is lagaragista.com. 
G-A-R-A-G-I-S-T-A, Garagista. Correct. Right? And Correct. it's a very informational, rich site. You know, I spent some good time. Oh, on good, it. good. For people that yeah. are intrigued and interested, that site will help them. Yeah, that's great. Um, and we also have our wine shop is on there. Um, any events that we're doing is on, on there. Pop-ups that we do at the farm, which we are doing roughly every couple of weeks. Uh, so you can come visit us there. Um, we do a great little... Uh, uh, pop-up bottle shop with uh, a little bit of food. So taste. we talked about low output of the amount of wines you make. If you go to these places, are some of the wines, different wines at different times available? I'm not going to go there and see sold out every time, right? No, no. no. So we You'll always have a good compliment okay. because we make so many things. Okay. We have a good compliment of wines, both on the online wine shop or if you come to visit us. Okay. And we always have a different flight that we're running that you can taste. Um, of so keep an eye on that. Yeah, keep an eye now, on that. Now, you don't have a site. You're a La Garagista, right? Is there yes, a Deirdrehican? No. There, no, it's just La Garagista. What yeah. about you? Uh, I am CJNB on Instagram. CJNB. What's the NB? My last two initials. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, thank you to... Deirdre Heakin and Caleb Barber, pretty uh, cool bunch of people, and their project La Garagista and all the other things that we talked about. Thank you for coming in and talking about everything. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.